0: Great, and how much time did you say I should 45 minutes, wow. Would you guys get it together, half hour? Oh, because I, I wrote the hour speech, so I'll cut it down. Uh, let me just say, I, I, I can't come to Oxy without thinking of what's wrong with our country. I, it symbolizes a lot of what I have to say about the, what's happened to this notion of the meritocracy, which was a, a great idea Uh, You know, it's why we have uh, land colleges, why we had City College in New York where I went to school, it's why we believed in public education. And the whole notion of replacing the inherited wealth and the aristocracy, uh, which was after all a Jeffersonian notion with people educated, uh, able, was that they would then take their experience of their village, their farming community, their city, into governing into the media, into all areas of power uh, in the country. And uh, the whole hope of a meritocracy of kids who were smart and learning. And then they would advance on the basis of merit. But they would also take the experience of, of their youth. Uh, they would uh, uh, you know, take what, the, what life was really like uh, back there on the farm or in the, in, in the city and uh, transfer that instead uh, what has happened really is uh, we see that the meritocracy is used to separate people from their experience uh, uh, did you say i said that bill clinton was a scalawag or? well that's the kindest thing i would say uh, I, I assume you're referring to his personal behavior which is turning out to be the positive part of his uh, administration uh, uh by comparison i'm not excusing it, uh, but uh, you know, the, the, there is a guy who born poor and, you know, in Arkansas and knows what it's like and ends up in government destroying the federal poverty program, <laughs> uh, giving everything to the banks. Uh, I, you know, I'm gonna give you a one minute, you can tweet uh, <laughs> what I have to say, but I mean a very disappointing example of, of what's supposed to happen. And then you have someone like Barack Obama who, you know, I almost wore my Obama T-shirt. Uh, I don't want to present myself as super wise and, and you know never wrong. I get it wrong plenty of times, and one of the things I got wrong was Barack Obama. And uh, my wife, who's here, can tell you that some 26 or 30 hours, she'd already maxed out. She was fanatic for Obama, and 30 hours before, and for no other reason, I wanted an intelligent uh, president, and we did get that. Uh, and with some balance, so I thought I was very grateful. Uh, But we were down in San Diego. I was speaking to the ACLU there, and a woman who was a big bundler for Obama, and I casually asked her, I said, it's in the bag, isn't it? And she said, oh no, no, we need more money. And like a real schmuck, I then write a check for $500, uh, and I get a t-shirt, which I have to this day, (laughs) some kind of original artist design t-shirt. And, uh, and it's really been a great disappointment, and a disappointment that I've tried to understand. I've actually gone to the school he went to in Honolulu. I've talked to people who knew his uh, grandparents. Uh, I actually, it turned out, was at a rally with his uh, African father. Uh, in, in Hawaii, I didn't know until I went through the I.O.W. International Longshoremen Union's records and, and uh, saw that we both participated in some kind of peace rally. Uh, at least I think we did. Uh, you know, I don't have photographs, uh, but it seemed to me we did. Uh, and uh, and his, by the way, his uh, his father's argument was, uh, don't get involved in all these wars because you won't be able to spend the money needed. To help people around the world, which is really what's needed, including in Africa, and after all, that's the theme Martin Luther King stated at the end of his uh, life before he was killed. And but you know the longshoremen, in I have a, a lot of good records, and, and Obama came from a very interesting family, and he grew up in a place in a rented apartment. I visited the apartment building. I talked to people who know him, and so forth. And then I couldn't figure out what went wrong. Well, it started to go wrong going to an elite high school, because most of the schools in Hawaii suck. I mean, they're really very bad, and I'm not putting down Hawaii. I love the place. Uh, But, you know, the public school system there is atrocious, except for some elite schools, not dissimilar from Los Angeles. And he goes to an elite school, and then he comes here, which I gather a number of people from Hawaii come to Occidental. I don't know why, whether it's the weather or what have you. And somehow, I've never been able to understand it. Derek Shear, I know, is very upset about it. But he's a Clintonista, so I don't give full credit to his critique. Uh, but I do think there was something revealing about Oxy not being fast lane enough. And after two years, you get to the Ivy League. You get to Columbia somehow rather, Then you get to Harvard and all this stuff. And I have nothing against those institutions. Uh, uh, I teach at USC, which I think we're a fine institution. We have uh, good students, uh, but there's something that happens along the way, We're, and not always. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, was somebody who managed to do the right thing. Uh, we have good Elizabeth Warren, a law professor at, at Harvard, running with a marvelous human brain, Brooks Lee Bourne, who was one of the great heroes, and the Clinton administration was the editor of the Stanford Law Review, so you can uh, rise in the system and still keep your integrity. Uh, but in the main, the force of this meritocracy is to forget your past. They're losers. Uh, work with the winners. What's the correct answer on the, on the SAT, on the test? Uh, what do they want? What do powerful people want to hear? The people who fund these institutions, the people who can give out the prizes, the people who can get you to the next stage write the key letter of recommendation and so forth. And so there, there's something horrible about it. Now, I bring it up because I was asked to, to talk about my own journey, uh, which uh, you know I won't be as leisurely talking about it. You know, It's a long time. Uh, <laughs> I was born in 1936. And I was thinking about it quite a bit when I talked about this. And I, you know, OK. I remember when I went to work at the Los Angeles Times, I'd already had some history. I'd done ramparts, I'd also done work for Playboy and Esquire and you know New Times and lots of others, and uh, wrote for a lot of people. and in fact, was regularly denounced in the l a Times when I ran for Congress. God, they did a hatchet job on me. Uh, but somehow, after my Jimmy Carter interview, I had enough celebrity or something with pizzazz and uh, they, they wanted me to go work there and I remember You know, and I've never had any question that I bring a lot of attitude and so forth, you know, Uh, but I did spend, you know, four years or something in graduate school and you know, I consider myself something of an intellectual, and I do think facts and logic matter, and you should document, and, you know, the old I.F. Stone tradition of leftist journalism, you better know what you're talking about, or Murray-Kempton, or, you know, its a whole tradition of really great uh, journalism, of people who were informed and respected truth and logic, and so forth, not I like to think I was out of that tradition, but I had no doubt that I brought attitude and experience, and so forth, and I remember my first time in my, A future wife then was not quite as powerful. She then became the associate editor. And by the way, any of you have arguments with the mainstream media, don't take it up with me. Take it up with her. I brought her to deflect such uh, criticism. Uh, But I remember uh, going across the street. I don't know if you ever saw the old Lou Grant show, but much of the action took place at a bar called the Redwood. And actually, the top editor had a phone there. A red phone and calls would come, and you could run the paper from the bar. And I remember the first time I went over this, in fact, the only place, and we had a great editor, Bill Thomas, a really terrific editor. I never would put him down in any respect, a marvelous person, and he's the one who educated Otis Chandler more than anyone, and he made the LA Times a, a, good, a really good paper. And, and yet, Bill Thomas would never talk to me if I wasn't getting drunk at the Redwood. And, and uh, after one terrible bout with him, or I, c- I couldn't remember a word, I decided not to drink, give up alcohol, and he wouldn't meet with me again. So uh, that was the way it worked. And it was all around this bar, the Redwood. And what hit me, because I knew, hey, I'm, I'm, I ran for Congress, and I did ramparts, and I'm, you know, everybody knew. I was this kind of lefty guy, and I've always been this lefty, even though many of the people I know on the left deny that. Uh, you know, I'm now denounced in the nation where I'm a contributing editor routinely because I dare have some kind things to say about Ron Paul. My God, I'm responsible now for every problem in the society. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, so you know, yet I had this little this mantle or something. I'm part of this thing. I'm not ashamed of it. And so I remember going to the Redwood, and I'm not, I think I didn't it was that, that close to Narda, but I remember asking. I said, "God damn it!" I thought I was the one that would have preconceived ideas. and You go in that bar, and within a half hour, you figure, realize you're with the most opinionated people in the world, in the world, about everything, particularly the sports writers. They had everything you know fi- fi- figured out. But everyone, the political, everyone knew how the school system should work, and what the police should do, and how the Federal Reserve should work. And you couldn't have, by the third drink, They should be running the country according to them. And so this whole notion that somehow they were just a clean slate, just give me the facts and let me figure it out, was nonsense, you know. uh, To the degree it was clean, it was only a matter of ignorance. You know, you were dropped into a country where you didn't know the language and the history and so forth and you try to become an expert in 48 hours. Something of a clean slate, but uh, basically ignorance. And so it hit me at that time that I really was not the most opinionated person here. I was actually one of the uh, milder types. Uh, you know. And uh, when I look back at my journalistic career, uh, I think, I remember, my, the standard I tried to adhere to uh, was keep your listening ears open. I don't know where I got it, in the third grade or something. And I figured out there was absolutely no sense my schlepping along with People, whether they were not known or they were famous or whatever, or being dropped into communities, uh, and not having my listening ears open without thinking. Maybe I'm full of shit. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe uh, you know I'll be surprised. Maybe there's a whole another wisdom here, and I think it 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 really worked for me as a journalist. I mean, if you uh, I have some of my books for sale at the. KPF, I'm trying to support KPFK. They're helping us with Truth Dig Radio on Thursdays at 4 o'clock. And uh, so I have some of my books that I've donated. You can, you know, If you're lucky enough to get one of the few copies, you can make a contract. I, the money goes to KPFK. Uh, but on the back of my book, I, I think it's this one. No, it's not this one. It's the other one on the playing president. I have a blurb from Richard Nixon. I interviewed Richard Nixon in 1985, and he sent me a letter after, I interviewed him after he sent me and he thanked me for my objective coverage uh, of his career, and you know, and I did. I did a whole thing in the LA Times, and I said, you know, and by the way, by today's standard of Republicans, Richard Nixon's a uh, flaming pinko. Uh, I mean, this guy believed in a guaranteed annual income. Uh, Moynihan's idea, this guy gave us the EPA, which they're all attacking now. Uh, I mean, it's startling. This guy did the opening to China, you know, I'm, after being a mass murderer. I'm not going to whitewash them. Uh, but, you know, there, there was at least some sanity and some sense of, of, of limits. And I got along quite well with Ronald Reagan. Uh, who I ha- interviewed first before he was governor, I interviewed him before as president. He was jet- very generous with his time. I got along with Jerry Falwell, and and I'm, I'm so I'm I'm offering this just in, because this is a, a journalistic conference, a media conference. I do think the listening ears thing is important, and and uh, if you don't do that, you don't really understand where people are coming from. You don't grow yourself. You don't learn yourself. And and my wife can tell you I every morning, whether I was writing for the LA Times or now for Truthdig and others, uh, at four in the morning, I think, I wake up, I can't sleep, and I've already filed my column, and I think it's all wrong, the spelling's all wrong, the facts are wrong, the argument's wrong, and blah, 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 you know, and then I try calling the City Desk, and there's no one there back in the LA Times, you know, and maybe we should change that so, And So I'm full of, of insecurity about all this, and I think it's been very valuable uh, and uh, my motto in journalism really comes from Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Does anybody here remember Lawrence Ferlinghetti? He's still alive. He's 94. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who I worked for for three years, when I got kicked out of graduate school at Berkeley, because uh, I wrote a book about Cuba with Marie Seitlin, who has been at UCLA for a long time. I perished publishing. They yanked my money. And uh, so I had to go sell books at City Lights for a buck and a quarter an hour for about three years. And that's where I wrote my first stuff about Vietnam and, Paul Krasner gave me money to go to Vietnam. I think it was 64. And Paul Krasner, of the realist, had the money because he would come up with this really brilliant thing of these fuck communism posters. <laughs> Did any of you have them in your dorm? It was incredible. This was a day when you could go to jail for saying fuck, right? I mean, Lenny Bruce, and so he was right down the street from City Lights. So Krasner, ever the genius, wily genius, came up with these beautiful red, white, and blue uh, posters and stars, and they said, fuck communism. Well, what was the head of the dorm going to do? Take it down, you know? You, you know, you commie pinko, you know? And, and so kids got these posters all over the country, swept the nation, and Krasnitz temporarily had some money. And so I went to him and I said, I've got to go to this place you've never heard of called Vietnam, uh, it cost uh, $1,446 for a ticket, and you have to write me a check now. And, uh, and he did. And that's how I was able to begin writing about Vietnam and, and becoming a foreign correspondent. Actually, I'd already been in Cuba and written that book. Uh, but I, I was thinking about that, you know, how, how did I get into this whole thing? Uh, and um, why didn't I go to, to Wall Street? question I've asked myself. <laughs> you know, I really do have the skills. I'm I'm pretty good at math and everything, and uh, you know, and I can sell anybody anything. I have you know non non-verbal learning disabilities of the kind that really do well on the street, and uh, and I and I, I, I thought about it and I thought about in preparation for this talk, and so I'll get back to this thing of being born in 1936, and quoting Ferlinghetti. Ferlinghetti said, and he was my boss at City Lights, but he wrote this once, he said, Keep an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. (laughs) And uh, for any of you who teach journalism, I think that should be the slogan. Keep an open mind, but not so open your brains fall out. And what he means is, you know, we weren't born yesterday. We have lives, we see, we have eyes, you know, we know things. And so it's not always up for debate the way TV tries. You know, hey, we got this new issue. Let's bang it around as if there's no history, isn't there? You know, I mean, we can talk about Iran, but we don't have to mention Masadev. We don't have to mention how the Shah got into power. We don't have to mention why he was overthrown. We don't have to know anything about Shiites and Sunnis and their relation to Iran. And you know, history doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. Logic—it's all boom, boom, boom. One minute, and we're gone. And, and uh, so I've taken that to, to be my slogan, and then I thought, well, what what was in my brain that I that, that shouldn't fall out? And it really goes back to being born in that weird year of thirty six. And if I'm being excessively autobiographical, it's because I think it's the only way I can understand how I ended up here at this advanced age. And so give me the hook when I've gone too far, but. Uh, uh, how many do I have? I have five? You're kidding. I, I have five minutes left? I'm dead in the water. I'm dead. I got this whole speech I never even got to. <laughs> Shit. Um, well, let me just say, me, let me do it really fast. Uh, okay. It's a good thing I worked on this for three days. Uh, This is like this is like cable TV. You know, get out, get in the green room. Okay. But two things happened to me in 1936, you know, when I was born. First of all, my father lost his job, and my father and mother weren't married. My father had another family, blah, blah, blah. So when people talk to me about welfare and dysfunctional families and everything, I was born into that, okay? And my father was a German Protestant, and my mother was a Russian Jew, and they both were garment workers. And we basically lived off my mother's salary. And uh, so I I understand. And in 36, as I said, my father didn't get his job back for four years. He, He was a knitter mechanic and uh, a very proud man and uh, so I I understand something about that world and uh, when you know when I was writing about welfare for the LA Times I had been on welfare for the first four or five years of my life home relief for one form or another I understand all of the issues uh, and so forth it was not an abstract issue it was something I did have in my mind and cared about it I also when I covered immigration uh, my mother was uh, both of my parents were immigrants and my mother never got her papers quite in order uh, my mother uh, had come from Lithuania. She was in uh, a group denounced by Lenin. She left after the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, but she got arrested five times the first month she was here in labor organizing. She was you know, one of those irrepressible types. And uh, so people always told her, you can't apply for citizenship. And so even at the end of my mother's life, when she lived with us and my wife, and my wife can tell you a story, she was 88. Uh, the INS then, ICE now, was trying to deport her. Uh, and I, I, I told the guy, I said, uh, what are you going to tell your boss, Ronald Reagan, uh, that you're deporting the first Jewish dissident to come to this country? Uh, because she had been in the Jewish Socialist bun which had been uh, condemned by the Bolsheviks and how to get here. And so th- there's that kind of reality. So when I've covered immigration, I go to the garment factories, and I go to the field, I-, I see my parents. You know, I don't see the other. And uh, it gets back to Jesus and the Good Samaritan, you know, who's your neighbor. Uh, and who 's the other and it 's a very critical insight to have and I think it 's an insight uh, both Clinton and Obama should have, uh, but somehow has been blurred because uh, they 've seen the the other it's not, it 's not should not have been alien to them uh, so that was one big thing, the economic setting and and uh, you know I grew up you know early in the in the depression, and i Started working when I was 12 and a half, and the whole thing, I delivered milk. I went from being the poorest kid to the richest kid in the neighborhood overnight because my Myerovich's grocery store was willing to exploit child labor and have me deliver the milk up and down the five floors. And uh, so I could buy a bike finally and all that kind of thing. So I, I've come through that, you know, and it has informed me very much. Uh, I'm a bleeding heart, whatever I am, you know, lefty. Uh, and then no question about it. The other thing that happened was Hitler. And it happened that my father was a German Protestant, as I said, and his family was still there, and, but we had relatives that had arrived in the 30s and so forth, and they had very thick German accents, and they played soccer and blah, blah, blah. And they were, however, fortunately, uh, socialists of some kind or other. They were wobblies, they were, you know, whatever. Uh, they were, uh, you know, welders and, you know, tool and die makers and everything, but they, for some reason or other, had developed a progressive uh, free-thinker view. Maybe one reason why they came here uh, was because America was a place where free-thinking was welcome. And, uh, and on the other hand, we had these relatives in Germany. And my mother was Jewish and my, my other whole family was Jewish and our relatives were uh, being killed and, 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 and uh, rounded up and everything. So I was painfully aware as a kid of, of what was going on and, and I developed an incredible hostility irrational, I have to control it, to nationalism and to religious fanaticism. Uh, I I, I cannot walk away from it. And to uh, the misuses of uh, of, of politics, uh, to the misuses of ideology, uh, whether it's secular or or religious driven or what have you. Uh, It's not a a mild issue in my life, it's it's an absolute uh, passion. There's Minsky, Minsky, I already mentioned KPFK, you can go. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Minsky, Program Director at KPFK, very good man. Um, Had a father who was a great economist, if they'd listened to him, we wouldn't have the economic crisis, but that's a whole other uh, story. So the other big thing, I only have now three minutes, the other big thing was this war. And what was startling to me, my mother used to have this game to to get me to eat my food, and the bad guys, you know, were the things that she wanted me to eat, like dessert. That was the Germans, was the cheesecake. And uh, the Russians were, were, uh, no, the Germans? The Germans were the spinach. The Russians were the cheesecake. I'm sorry, I got it wrong. And then it changed overnight. Uh, But as a kid, you know, we burned Hitler's house, we killed Krauts. Uh, you know, even though my father was a kraut, uh, so I had to go through all this, and what was amazing to me, and my view of mainstream media, was how that changed, to my imagination, almost overnight. Overnight in my school, in the community, everywhere. The Germans went from being the most evil people, and they they'd certainly participated in the greatest evil of modern history, the best educated, with the finest music, the highest level of science, the greatest sense of order, and by the way, less anti-Semitism than they had in Eastern Europe and other places. And somehow they became the big, most incredibly barbaric people of modern history. Okay, And then suddenly it was forgotten. And suddenly, oh, it was our allies, the, the, the Soviets, who were now the bad guys, and the Germans were somehow miraculously the good guys. And I never could rest easy with this. And so as a result, I've been to Germany many times. I've uh, had bestsellers in Germany, and finally, on the strength of my bestsellers, uh, uh, decided to devote time to finding my relatives. I found my uncle who had been wounded in Stalingrad. You know, I found our home village to try to figure out how this happened. And that whole experience you know about if you read Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil, and you know we can discuss it if you want, has inoculated me against this primitive anti-Muslim, anti-Arab, anti-anti-anti uh, that you hear all the time that drives our debate. I, I know what hogwash it is, I know how, how trendy it is, how politically convenient it is, and how it misses the whole point of the human experience. You know, and it's it's in my blood. So if I think of the kind of journalism that I have been involved in, it's been attempting to to set the record straight on those two big issues. Okay. Now the other th- final thing I want to say about journalism and the mass media, I, and this was really what I was going to spe- spend some time leisurely doing, uh, but let me do it in one minute. Uh, you know. Um, uh, 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 I'm, I'm used to speaking for three hours, because I have 200 students in a much bigger auditorium, and they, you know, because it's going to be on the test. Everybody says, yeah, keep going, keep going. You know, uh, <laughs> you're not, it's not going to be on the test, so OK. Uh, but the real issue in terms of my relation to mass media, uh, first of all, I don't want people to be cynical. I think cynicism is a cop-out. So if the game is rigged, if the world is against us, if there's nothing you can do, in my lifetime experience, people became opportunists, people became indifferent, uh, they did not participate in their society. And on the other hand, I saw people participate in movements, uh, whether they were covering them or whether they were part, part of them and so forth that seemed quite forlorn at the time and yet became major success stories and you know those movements. But I remember when the Civil Rights Movement was a forlorn cause and nobody talked about it I remember being a St. Louis Cardinal fan uh, when they won. maybe small thing in your life but I was uh, 10 years old when they won the World Series against the Red Sox and and I cheered them I don't know why probably at the beginning of my radicalism that I didn't want to go for the Yankees or the Dodgers when everybody else did and then a year later my hero Enos Slaughter spikes Jackie Robinson going around first base you know, and the Cardinals who were the most southern team let out a black cat. You know, and they are the most racist team. And there I am, left alone in the Bronx to explain the racism of the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, and uh, my best friend, a guy named Carl Juergens, uh, you know, a Negro, as we called in those days, but, uh uncle, very famous artist, Max Jurgens, couldn't play baseball, and yet he was unquestionably the best athlete in the Bronx that we knew of. You know, and then suddenly that could change a little bit. So I know that the civil rights movement didn't start with certain dramatic events. I happened to be in Plains, Georgia. uh, Before I ever heard of Jimmy Carter, I was there in 1960. uh, with some people who were doing some civil rights stuff. I was in Koyani Farm, an integrated community up the road from Plains that we used to have appeals in The Nation magazine and others to support them because they were being bombed and shot at because they actually had integrated living on the basis of a biblical communism or whatever they th- thought they were doing, kind of a utopian community. So I, I understand, and when and I think just to fast forward and end because they're gonna give me the hook right now, I think of the mass media. And the mass media wasn't interested. Throughout my life, the mass media went along. The mass media went, well, didn't really, was an interest in the treatment of the Jews or what else was happening you know, during World War II. There wasn't much interest in, in civil rights. Uh, you had to go to, to the counter press for that information. Uh, to get that Uh, and and it came very late in the day they weren't interested in the ridiculous involvement in Vietnam that ends up killing three and a half million people no one could ever justify never made any sense Uh, the New York Times with some very few exceptions Homer bigger later David Halberstam but you know in the main cheering it on and I'm just going to end with one example of that I didn't choose radical journalism because it's better I always went wherever you can get the word out. I'll print anywhere. I wrote for Playboy, you know, I'll print. It's, to me, it's putting your billboard up in the subway. You know, uh, and uh, I remember at Ramparts, and it's a, this is a gr- very good book by Peter Richardson, A Bomb in Every Issue, if you haven't read it on the history of Ramparts. It did a great job, it was out two years ago. And, and the New York Times actually gave it two very good reviews, but he points out that because we had the pictures of the children in Vietnam who were being killed and injured, and Martin Luther King saw our issue at an airport, and he decided at that basis that he had to speak out against the war. And when he spoke out against the war, the New York Times editorially denounced him. He called the United States the major purveyor of violence in the world today, and he said, how can I not speak out against that when I'm urging nonviolence on kids in in, in a ghetto community? And and, uh, he spoke out, and the New York Times denounced him for disorienting the Civil Rights Movement and undermining it and splitting it and so forth. And we published it in Ramparts. Martin Luther King gave us the exclusive right uh, to publish it because we wanted the whole statement that he had made at Riverside Church. Uh, So my mind, you need alternative media because the mainstream media, the mainstream media, will fail you. And it will fail you because of the nation of ownership power and what have you however I say use it whenever you can use it. I'm not a purist that's why I was at the LA Times for 30 years however I always kept my right I had it was very clear about this if you don't want to print it I have the right to print it elsewhere that was something Otis Chandler went along with Bill Thomas went along with you know and so on the few occasions when it looked like they might not print something I was able to go down and say, fine your paper, but let me give it to the nation. And in fact, I did that with the last story I ever did for the LA Times, and reason I went to become a columnist instead of reporter. It was on welfare. It was on Forest City, Arkansas. It was on the lie of Bill Clinton, of Project Success, and they thought they had enough already, and so I, I did it as a, a cover in, 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 the, in the nation. Uh, and I finally, because I haven't covered really what I want to cover, the economic meltdown, Uh, And if you read my book, you'll see the mass media was totally complicit. Totally. Why? And I'll give you the one-minute explanation. They wanted deregulation primarily. You know, they've got it. What did Clinton represent? Deregulation, uh, first of all, represented ending the federal poverty program called welfare reform. Terrible. Okay. Secondly, the media, all these people wanted telecommunications reform. They always use the word reform. As a result, it is telecommunication reform cheered on by the mass media. Uh, you could have a radio station and a newspaper in the same market, and blah, 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 to get the synergy. That's why the LA Times went uh, down. That's why the Tribune Company bought it. Uh, that's why they went into bankruptcy and we lost our retiree health plans. Okay, uh, That's the reality. But the newspapers were so involved and the TV stations with this Deregulation—that was the mantra. Here comes Clinton along, and there's two bills, and I'll leave you on this: that that they passed, and one and which both were cheered. I don't have time to read from my book, the New York Times editorial, and what have you. One was called the Financial Services Modernization Act, which reversed Glass-Steagall and all the other sensible rules of the road left over from the New Deal out the window, and the New York Times, I could read you the passages in my book, I mean just thrilled to it, both in their news reporting and, and on their, so did the LA Times, obviously the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, what have you. And a year later, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, Again, which they cheered on, which allowed the collateralized debt obligations, the CDOs, and the credit default swaps to be totally unregulated. Titles three and four of that that legislation said no existing regulation or government regulatory agency will be able to control these devices. That's the basis of the whole housing boom, the meltdown, and this thing that has cost us over $10 trillion. So, uh, and that was cheered on by the mass media. So if you need, forget about, there was a rock war, of course, uh, which the, the mass media cheered on and out of cowardness. Uh, but if you want a current example of why you can't rely on the mass media, it's because the ownership, it doesn't have to be GE, which owned NBC. You know, it doesn't have to be that blatant. The fact is, the owners of these ventures have the perspective of the one That's It's just a reality. There are individual editors and journalists who can stand up against it, who can challenge it. But in the main, that's where they're coming from. And, and that's what the conversations are going to be at their country clubs, uh, you know, and or, or lunch, power lunches, and they're going to uh, push things in that direction. And, and that's why they were very late to cover the Occupy movement. In the end, when the Occupy movement gets, uh, I hope it's temporary, uh, destroyed, who does it? It's the mass media talking about all the confusion and what do they really want and everything. You know, what are they really programmed? And, and it's liberal mayors primarily sending the cops in to smash people who are exercising the, a right that is clearer in the First Amendment than the right of free press, the right of citizens to peacefully assemble to redress grievances. And if you can't address grievances at City Hall, you know, or in Oakland and uh, City Hall, I've been at, uh, you know, at the both of those encampments and I've spoken to them. Where the hell are you supposed to do it? You know, and yet the mass media went along with that. So I'll end on that note. And, uh